love for you to take the Word of God and turn to Mark chapter number 12 with me. Mark chapter number 12. And we will pick up our reading where we left off last week. Just tracking through the book of Mark verse by verse. And uh, what a blessing it's been just to see our Lord in action. Him accomplishing the work which He came to accomplish. If you will, we'll stand for the reading of God's Word out of reverence for it. And we'll pick up our reading this morning in the book of Mark in verse number 28. You read these words, Then one of the scribes came, and have, having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second like it is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth. For there is one God, and there is no other but He. And to love Him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw him that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. Let's pray. Father, we were reminded earlier just of um, that great apostle Paul. We were created, Father, to the praise of your glorious grace. Um, so, Father, I pray that you would receive that end even now. That, Father, as we gather together, Father, as one people saved from a hundred different backgrounds, Father, you've saved us unto yourself for this one purpose, to the praise of your glorious grace. So, Father, as we worship you this morning, and as we have worshipped you, Father, in prayer and song and gathering, um, in fellowship, um, I pray now, Father, that this sermon, this time together, Father, around your word, would be to the praise of your glorious grace. Um, Father, we don't need a, a good sermon. We need to hear from you. So, Father, would you speak to us? And would you take this sword that's sharper, Father, than any two-edged sword the world could ever make, and that it would divide asunder, Father, the very intents and thoughts of our hearts. God, you know the depths and the secrets that are contained within us. And you, Father, um, who fashioned them with your own, by your own will and by your own ability and power, I know this morning, Father, exactly how to supply the need that we have. So God, as unworthy as we are, we come to you this morning in Christ by the power of the Spirit of God, begging you, Lord, to accomplish eternal things in our hearts even now. God, would you help me to be faithful, um, Lord, not to lean on um, eloquence or logic or any other human philosophy. Father, may, may we rest this morning upon the power of God. May we come in weakness this morning as, as we might find strength because, Father, that's what we need in this world, to persevere, to live. Father, we need you, so may we find you this morning, in Christ's name, amen. Amen, you can be seated, thank you for, for standing. As we said, if you're visiting with us, we welcome you and thank God for you. 
Um, but just to bring you up to speed, um, we've been taking Mark as a whole, um, verse by verse, for sometime over a year now, and it's been a blessing to to um, to be able to endeavor such a on such a journey. And we thank God for that. And what that means is is that we simply pick up with the next text that we left off from last week. So that's where we pick up today. We pick up in verse number uh, twenty-eight. But this account is not a, an entirely brand new account. Um, this is an account that we've been dealing with for weeks. Um, just to bring you up to speed, we find our Lord in the last week of His life. Um, this is what we would refer to as Passion Week. He's already told His disciples on more than one account um, that He has, is setting His face towards Jerusalem like a flint. They don't fully understand it and they won't until the other side of the grave in the, in the fullness of the resurrection. But nevertheless, He's preached now more clearly than He's ever preached um, that he must suffer and that he must die. Um, in some sense, he's, he's the cause and reason of that, not only eternally but also temporally. I mean, he's pushing a lot of buttons in the temple right now. He's already went in, and uh, that, that's the environment which we find him now. Um, but a day previous, he's already went in more than once, and on one occurrence, he flips the table in righteous indignation, changes going everywhere. Um, why? Because they've turned the um, temple of God, the house of worship, the house of prayer, that dwelling place of God, that place where God um, designed to meet with men and pour out His presence upon them. Um, that They turned it into a, a gambling casino. They turned it into a den of thieves. They turned it into a pot of greed. And... Um, and with righteous indignation, fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, but also handling business in the present, um, he makes himself known. The following day, he enters back into the temple, and that's where we find him. Um, you can imagine the tension, probably, with the entirety of the crowd. And what we see, or have seen up to this point, is multiple people, multiple sects, um, uh, parties of the religious crowd um, coming to the Lord Jesus to foil his plan and to take him to task and to ruin his credibility, um, to outsmart and to outwit him. And up to this point, um, he's laid them all low. Um, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders all came, um, questioning in his authority, and, um, and he answered them well. Um, the Pharisees and the Herodians come, and they try to, um, and they try to wiggle their way um, into a, a position to discredit our Lord, and our Lord answers them too very well. Um, last week we met the Sadducees, those theological liberals who take the Lord to task with a game of wits, and, and one of the texts, uh, one of the Gospels writes that he silenced them. Um, they asked him, the Sadducees being that, um, that, that, that party, um, asked him no more questions. And it's not that they received it well, um, it was that they recognized that that, that way of taking our Lord out was not a possibility. Um, he was too wise, he was too smart, he was too witty, um, that they are going to now employ a different means to take our Lord out, which will culminate here in just a few days in the text um, in his death. Um, that, that's where we find ourselves in the text. Uh, verse number 28, then one of the scribes came. So this is immediately following our, our ordeal with the um, Sadducees. We meet another scribe. Well, I thought he already dealt with the scribes. He did. Um, this is a singular scribe, it seems. One of the other um, gospel writers um, tells us that this is not only a scribe, um, but it's also a, a Pharisaic lawyer. 
Um, a lawyer in those times, a scribe, a Pharisee, it would have been common to carry all three titles. This would have been, um, again, that th- those religious zealots, those upholders of the law, those who even recorded and, and reported the law, those great interpreters of the law. Um, they, they've came to Jesus time and time again, um, seeking to discredit Him, to show that He's not God, um, to uh, divert people from following Him. Um, but this, this, this account is a little different. It's somewhat unique in the Scriptures. And because the Pharisees are often seen as the great enemies of our Lord, but here we find that one of the scribes came. And having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him a great question. Um, and he challenges our... Our Lord, but it's unique. It's rare. Why? Because Pharisees are generally our Lord's enemies. But here it seems that this young man, or this older man, we don't know the age necessarily, um, seems to may even be rooting for our Lord. It seems that there is an enthusiasm carried about him. There doesn't seem to be um, the same type of obstinacy, the same type of opposition, the same type of hatred for our Lord. Um, It could be very well that he's sitting back as a young theologian or a seminary student and he's listening to our Lord engage in all of the the debates and he recognizes and with great esteem um, the, the level of wisdom and intellect and intelligence and wit of this man named Jesus. I mean, it may not be necessarily that um, that he even looks at him as Lord, but possibly has earned the respect of Christ such that um, he answers everyone else well and it provokes within him a question to ask this great rabbi, this great teacher, this great philosopher, as he may have perceived him um, to be. He doesn't seem to be a believer. Um, in the fullest sense, and I take that from verse number 34, as the Lord Jesus Christ responds to him, says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. It doesn't seem that he's reached into faith in Jesus Christ um, just yet or received um, the fullness of salvation or the newness of life, but Christ says, man, you're, just, you're, you're not far from the kingdom. And that may be a commendation. I don't know. That may be a great condemnation. Um, maybe we'll look at that here in just a, a few minutes. But what we see is this challenge to our Lord, um, number one. He challenges him, not necessarily, again, in an, in an obstinate way, but he challenges him possibly um, in, 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 a, in a way of, of discernment, in a way to test him, um, to actually find the answer or to test him um, to see if he understands and knows, um, to knows the law. doesn't seem to be malicious or evil intent, um, just possible respect and enthusiasm for what appears to be to him a, a great man of God. Um, so what's the challenge? What's the question? Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? What is the greatest commandment of all? What is possibly with that term commandment of all, not, not necessarily the singular greatest commandment of, of, of in, in, um, as far as in quantity, What's the greatest type of commandment? What's the greatest, the, the, the terminology there would give the significance. What's the greatest kind of all commandments? Um, either way, our, our Lord um, will answer him. This wouldn't have been a unique question either to this young man. This was a common question that was asked by, by most Pharisees, by most rabbis, by most teachers, by most men of religious status, by most simple inquirers, maybe most, maybe most of you. Um, 
Not too long prior to the event, history notes of a popular rabbi by the name of Hillel. You may remember that um, Hillel um, had a great debate with uh, marriage uh, among the people um, during that time as, as well. Um, a Gentile approaches Hillel, um, again, decades previous to this account, and asks him, um, because he understood the, the position that this rabbi held, he asks him a question, or he makes a, a proposition. He says, make me a proselyte. A convert to Judaism on the condition that you teach me the whole law whilst I stand on one foot. That's the challenge, you know. Teach me the entirety of the law of your God while I stand here on one foot. Um, Hillel looks back and he says, okay, what you hate for yourself, he says, do not do to your neighbor. This is the whole law. All the rest is commentary. Now go and learn, end quote. The rabbis, um, this would have been, again, a question that this wouldn't have been even uncommon for this young man, uh, but one that they had bounced around in their own minds and thoughts as they had debated and, um, um, and engaged in philosophy and different worldviews that would have been probably on the, the hearts of, of most people. Father, what's the greatest commandment? What do I need to do? There's a, there's a sense in which not only this passage but other passages, what, what's the greatest because... I need to know what to do to gain eternal life. That could have been the nature of it. Um, the rabbis had systematized the law into 613 laws, uh, about half of which were positive, about half of which were negative. Um, even our Lord engaged in such an endeavor in Matthew, uh, Matthew's account, I believe it's chapter number 5. He refers to those being least in the kingdom of heaven who break even the least of the commandments. That they had engaged, they were, it was common among the day to engage in what was the, the least of the commandments and what was greatest of the commandments. Um, Jesus in Matthew 23, 23, which will be after this account, and if you, if you go chrono chronologically, um, pronounces condemnation on the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 23. And he does so by saying this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you pay tithe and mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, which are justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving others undone. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Um, that he says that there are different types of law, and there's even ways and greater sense of breaking certain laws over others. It's a similar popular notion even today. That sin is, is, and law is this somewhat this formless void in which all sin is equal. You know, thus we have this um, um, authority then to engage in any type of sin, and and we say, well, it's it's your sin is different than my sin, but it's really all the same in God's eyes. And there's a sense in which that's true. Um, it's true that all sin is worthy of death, and that the wages of sin is death. And that it doesn't matter whether it's a, a you know a murder um, of a first degree or a, a little white lie. One seems like a mountain, and the other seems like a molehill. Um, and in some sense, they are equal, in the sense that they all deserve the same type of judgment. But at the same time, our Lord recognizes, and that we should recognize too. Um, that there are different types of sin and that some are greater than others and that um, some are lesser, some are thought um, sins and some are great crimes. Some leave lasting consequences um, in this life. David is a, is a perfect illustration of that as well as many others throughout Scripture and, and also some, are, are, some of you know that as, as well. So the question that arises is a common question, a question that it, we even have today. 
um, that there is a reality that there are some least commandments and that there are some greater um, commandments. And our Lord actually um, understands and believes that as well. I mean, if He didn't, He wouldn't answer the question the way that He did with the greatest commandment. Verse number 25, Jesus says and answers Him. And let me just paint the picture um, beforehand of our Lord. We're in the presence of the greatest authority that's ever lived in this life, that's ever existed all throughout all eternity. And He takes all of God's Word and everything that He's ever written in it, everything that He's ever thought, everything that He's ever displayed, everything that He's ever communicated um, to the world. We have here the greatest person that's ever walked the face of the earth looking at the greatest book that's ever been written who no doubt knows the Old Testament from front to back, every Hebrew word, every sentence structure, he's the one that wrote it all. And the greatest authority that's ever existed in time and in eternity now is going to tell us what the greatest commandment is. Our ears should perk up. What is it? Number one, it's to love God. That's it. The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord our God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second like it is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these, he says. I'm not exactly sure what the young man wanted to hear or expected to hear. It seems like this is what he expected. Either way, Jesus um, expresses the greatest commandment. Um, was at that time, and I think it's even to this day, um, to love God, not only supremely and primarily, but comprehensively. That God is to be the utmost affection of our entire heart, of our, of our entire being. And that is to be expressed not only in a wholesale delight in God and from our inner man, but it is to be expressed in a comprehensive call. Um, to utilize every faculty that God has given us and to recognize that everything that God has given us um, is to be utilized for this one great endeavor to fulfill this one great command. With all of our soul, with all of our strength, with all of our might, with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with everything that we are, we are to pursue this one great command. Jesus, although uniquely in Mark, begins His answer um, different than the other gospel writers do, and I think we should give some attention to that. He begins by quoting Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, and that's where you'll find much of the text, the beginning of this text, um, commandment 1, and this great statement um, in verse number 29 in Deuteronomy, direct quote from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and, and 5. It's commonly known as the Shema. It's a, a Hebrew word that literally, um, it, it's, it's that first word in Deuteronomy 6, 4, hear, hear, O Lord, I mean, it was known as uh, essentially Israel's creed. It's something that they would recite two, three, uh, multiple times a day eventually. And they took that text in Deuteronomy, extremely literal. Um, they, they, they had devised something called phylacteries and they would put the verse in it and they would wear it on their head and they'd bind it to their foreheads, uh, to their foreheads and as well as to their, their forehands um, in devotion to the Lord. And that's what, and this would have been a verse that, that this man would have quoted um, in his life, probably thousands of times, depending upon his age, it would have been something that he would have known, that would have been ingrained in him um, since the very first time that we um, that, that he could have spoke or understood. You know, um, what is the uh, chief end of man? We ask our little ones to glorify God and uh, 
and to enjoy him forever. That would have been their first catechism question. The hero Israel, the Lord our God, is one God. And it's extremely important to note that um, in reference, I think, to our great commandment, um, to recognize that it's not born, that this great commandment's not born in a void. Um, it's not formless. But it's burst out of a revelation of the very character and nature of God. Jesus gives this commandment, love God. But the, reg- but, but the realization is, is that that would be an impossibility um, if He too not, did not give some sort of revelation about who He is. And this may not seem like it's a big deal, but I think it, um, it really is. True love is always, before we even get into the conversation of true love, true love is always, or, w- or what it means to love God, um, true love is always predicated on truth. People know this. Um, but they often reject it, particularly in relationship to our Lord. And they argue that it's okay to worship God in any way um, that they desire. And the reality is, is that they don't carry that into every other relationship that, um, that they um, live and have. The reality is, is that it's an impossibility to love someone that you don't know. Without knowledge, you don't actually love the person. You simply love the image that either you've created of them or the image that they've created of themselves and personified to you. You love what you know about them, but all that you know about them is a lie. Thus, you cannot love them in, in, in reality. You know, for example, a husband and a wife may be married for 10 years and then, and then the wife finds out that the husband's been lying about the entire marriage. I mean, actually, he's been married to a woman two states across with three children for the last 15 years. His name is not his real name. His job is not his real job. Um, And at the end of it, you can understand why she wonders if she ever loved him at all. Because the reality is that she didn't. Because she didn't know him. Um, She didn't know anything true about him. She couldn't love him because of the lie that was told to her. She loved the lie. Never really actually um, loving him. This is true of God as well. This is why idolatry is a thing. I never understand people who engage and hold the Bible as the inspired Word of God, yet believe that um, you can worship God by any name according to any measure that you so desire. Um, To do that, you have to throw out (laughs) essentially the entirety of the Old Testament and the first commandment of the table that was given in Exodus chapter 20 um, in the charge of idolatry. Idolatry doesn't exist in that world. You know, idolatry is an actual sin. It's an actual charge against mankind. It's, it's the great reason that spiritual adultery, that idolatry going after other gods um, that put Israel in so much of the predicament and under the judgment that they had had for so many years and decades and ultimately their demise here in just a few days and years. That God cares what you think about Him. Um, that God cares that you worship who He is. That you can, you're not to believe in some concept of God. That's, that's the, 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 the nature of the day. That you can believe in any concept of God and believe this great commandment, love God. And in loving the God of your own mind, you break the very commandment before us because you love another God, because I love another God. Many people believe that they'll get to heaven one day and they'll stand before Him. And, and I'm afraid as Matthew 7 tells us um, that they'll meet a guy that they've never known. Because they believed a lie that they had told themselves. That this is who God is. And often most, um, is most direct, um, it, 
The true worship of God flows and grows out of the revelation and great truth of who God is. We love to fashion gods after ourselves, but at the end of the day, the greatest idolatry is probably the worship of self, and that's where most of us um, by nature fall. God cares how you worship Him. God cares what you know about Him. That to know Him is eternal life, Jesus says. John 17, 3 says, And this is eternal life that you may know Him, the only true God. Hear the Shema in there in some sense. And He goes on to say, And Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Father, this is eternal life that we may know You, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. That the text is very um, explicit. There is only one true God and that true God has revealed Himself primarily in Jesus Christ. Why? That You may know Him and that I may know Him. That we may fulfill that great duty, that great duty of all men to love Him supremely and to love Him comprehensively. Not only is He again to be the great affection of our souls, but with everything that we have, um, we are to express total allegiance to Him and, re- and that He may receive the honor and the glory that's due His name. Now this doesn't mean um, that you can't love God without knowing everything about God. Um, but it does mean that there are some basic things that you have to know about God. If we, And those things that you do know about Him, you are to love. It's like asking me, can I love my wife without knowing the fullness of her? And the reality is, is that I will never fully know her. You know, I can give you instances of last week or the week before, and she can tell you the same thing. Um, of, of the, it, but the, the nature of relationship is this growing love. This, and it grows with knowledge that what we do know about the one true God, that it is real and that it is truth and that whatever it is that we, when we walk into it, we love it with our wheels. We love it with our affections. And it pours out into our our lives. That as we begin to understand His holiness, His transcendence, His his love, His mercy, His loving kindness, His justice, this man named Jesus, who's God of very God, who gave His life on behalf of us, it should become very obvious to you and to me and to every person that's ever lived, of every age, of every ethnicity, that this is a God who deserves our love. Number one, He deserves our love. He deserves everything that we are. He is worthy of everything that we have. He deserves the attention of our mind. He deserves the worthy, uh, He's worthy of the utmost affections of our heart. And His character warrants entire devotion of our wills and our actions. Now, there's no debate over that this morning. I'm not arguing that that's, um, that that should be true. That's true. That the God who created all the world um, is worthy of you this morning. And everything that you are and everything that you have. Now, this is the very fact, and in fact, why we were created. You say, I don't know. <laughs> I just don't know if that's true. I just don't know if I even love God. Maybe you're right. God commands you. This is why you were created. To glorify God by loving Him and doing what He commands. You were created to be a canvas of God's glory. He created you out of His own freedom and out of the abundance of His heart and character that, and that, that those whom He created might share in the bounty and the glory of who He is and all that He has to give. And I know that we've been inundated with the focus of, 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 of God's Word and preaching today that's all about you and it's all about me and we're just the, just the object and just the love of God's affection such that God was so lonely that He created everything particularly to fulfill some, tor- some sort of void that's within Him and that He needs us. Let me li- listen. Acts chapter 17, Paul's pretty clear. 
He says, I proclaim him to you, speaking of God. Um, God doesn't, that, that he who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands as though he needed anything. Since he gives to all life and breath and all things. He goes on to say that he has made all men, that he has determined all of their boundaries. Why? Verse 27, so that they should seek the Lord. That's why. So that they should seek Him and so that they should find Him. For in Him, it, the text says, we live and move and have our being. That He created you this morning. He created me this morning. He placed you in Kingsport, Tennessee. Some of you in Johnson City. Some of you in Bristol. Some of you in other states. For this one purpose, so that you would seek Him and that you would love Him. So that you would find Him, not because He needed you, but because you need Him. The Scripture is pretty clear that God was fully and completely satisfied with Himself and within the Godhead and that He created you to share in the bounty of who He is and to display Himself not only to the world but to the entirety of the universe. Revelation 4.11 says, John writes, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things, and by Your will they exist and were created. Romans 11.36, For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse number 8, To me who am less than the least of the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent now that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the church, and to the principalities and powers in heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Revelation, uh, John in Revelation, Paul in Romans, Paul in Ephesians says, guess what? God created you for this sole reason, for His honor and for His glory. Thus, He deserves it. And guess what? He did it in Romans chapter number 11, 36. He sustains you, created you to this end for His glory. Why, Paul? Ephesians chapter 3 and verse number 8, that the mystery of Christ might be made known throughout all the church, through all the world, and even to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. You know what that means? The angels and the demons. That Jesus Christ is working and operating within the congregation of God's people that, all, that, 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 that His glory might dis be displayed to all of His creation. 1 Peter 1 and verse 10 and 12 says, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, and who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what manner of time it would be. The Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when He testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed, but, that, but not to themselves, but to us. They were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which the angels desire to look into. The angels are watching this morning. Uh, Romans chapter 8 and verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 10 is a much stranger verse speaking of the relationship between a husband and a wife and, um, and the role of submission and authority. And in verse of chapter 10 he says for this reason the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head why because of the angels um, Romans 8 verse 18 says for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God for the creation was subjected to futility not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope 
because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. You say, what's all that about? Creation waits to see the revelation of Christ's character within the church at the coming of Christ when we will see Him and we will be like Him. John 13, 34 says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. Why, John? Or why, Christ? That you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That this love is to be displayed, which is a unique characteristic of God Himself in this world. Why? Because God desires to display His, His, His glory to not only to you, not only to me, but to the angels, to the demons, to the principalities, to the, to the powers, to all of creation. They were subjected to this in futility, not willingly. Why? Because, because there's hope in Christ that one day the revelation of God's glory will be revealed where? In us. That we are a canvas um, solely 100% uh, for the glory of God. And that Christ today is, is more than sufficient and worthy to receive that reward of which He came into the world and gave His only life for. That this is the greatest commandment. Why? Because it is the primary duty of man. It's to love God. How? with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. We should love God simply because of who God is and His revelation, and we should be in love. We should love it all. How do we do that? With everything that we are. That's the command. That's the command. That He is to be not only the love of our hearts and affections, but our, our great treasure, but the devotion of our life. Did you know this morning that that is what God requires of you? That you are to love God with everything that you are and everything that you have. And that the fail at this command will one day hold us accountable to God as the great evil of the universe. If this is the great commandment, can you imagine then what the greatest sin is? If this is the greatest commandment to love God with everything that we are, then what would be the greatest sin? To not love God with everything that we are. That's what God requires. He requires that there's a love for God out of our whole heart. We're to love God with all of our affections. That our affections are to be set upon God in such a way that there are no rivals. That He's the chief end of all of our joys, our happiness, our delight, in whom our, our heart glories in and above everything else. Uh, one, one, one writer writes this, the love of God is a delightful and affectionate sense of the divine perfections, which makes the soul resign and sacrifice itself wholly unto Him, desiring above all things to please Him, and delighting in nothing so much as in fellowship and communion with Him, and being ready to do or suffer anything for His sake or at His pleasure. But that's the idea that God, we are to be so delighted in God and, and so uh, consumed by Him that our soul resigns ourselves and our delights for the very delight of God. That's the key to sacrifice. That's the key to joyful sacrifice. That we're to love God also with our, own, with our whole soul. The idea is to love God with our entire being. Everything that we are, the totality of who we are. Another Puritan writes, to go all day with no inclination of soul towards God, no thought of Him, no design to please Him, no, no design to serve Him or glorify Him. If this be your habitual temperament, he says, and the usual course of life, he says, you call this love? 
You may, you may as well call water fire and fire water. You call good evil and evil good. To love God with our whole soul is to ask questions. How can I love Him? How can I please Him? How can I obey Him? If He is what He says that He is and He's revealed that to us and He is as worthy as He is as glorious, He is as pure, as holy, as righteous, as, 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 as the ultimate um, object of, of all the worlds, more than anything else, then these are questions we should ask to fulfill this great commandment. How can I love You, Lord? Love out of your whole strength, the text says. Love out of your whole mind. The idea is, is that one is possible of the will. It's to love God in action. It's to love God with our wills. It's to give credence to and a manifestation of this, this love that is expressed towards us with our hands, with our mouths, with our feet, with our lives. It's to ask questions like, man, how can I glorify God today in my work? He's worthy of my hands today. It's a question to ask, is, is, is what I'm doing, is what I'm about to do, is what I've done been pleasing to the Lord? It looks like faith. It looks like obedience. It looks like worship. Not only here on Sunday, but in all of life. It looks like that in all everything that you do to the very glory of God. That's the first and greatest commandment. Then Jesus turns to the second. Matthew says the second, which is like it, is that you should love your neighbor as yourself. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? He didn't ask that question, the scribe. He didn't want to know that. He wanted to know, number one, the greatest, the greatest type, the greatest all. But Jesus gives him a little something that he didn't pay for. and um, He tells him not only like that, but the, the second is of the same sort. It's of the same kind. It's like the first. Um, but it's interesting, isn't it? As I study this out and I think about it and just, like I think I have a good sermon yesterday and then I sit down even more and it's just like my mind is blown. I'm mentally exhausted trying to think about the love of God, the character of God, all that He deserves and all that I'm not, you know? Not only do we fail Him in the first and greatest, but we fail Him in the second, don't we? The interesting thing is, is that it doesn't even seem like it's another law to me. But at the same time, it is in a sense commentary, as the rabbi said earlier, on the first law. Why? Because a person who truly loves God will be a person who truly loves others. Those aren't two different types of people. Um, you don't find one, and you don't find a guy and say, "Man, that, that guy really loves God, but he just—he's <laughs> not the people person. We're not going to put him out front shaking hands. You know, he's not the—he's uh, just not a guy who's given over to service. He." You know, he's, he's a hermit. He loves to stay home, but he just worships God in his own heart. Like, according to, to, to Christ, the Bible, and the revelation of God's Word, that guy doesn't exist. He's lying to himself. Because the person who loves God loves people. Nor do you find a person and say, wow, man, that person really loves other people, but they hate God. <laughs> you know? Like, they told me they hate God. They don't believe in God. Um, and they just they disdain religion altogether. Um, those people don't exist. You say, well, I know a person who's, who's really not a religious person at all. They don't go to church, but man, they, they'd give their shirt off their back and actually, you know, two weeks ago I was out and about and, and I got into some car trouble and they did. They gave me the shirt off their back. Let me just say whenever I say those people don't exist, is, uh, uh, what I'm not saying is that there's not nice people out there. What I'm not, what I'm not saying is, is that there's not moral people out there or people who don't do good things. Actually, like they do. And that's part of the problem. 
We do good things. We do lots of seeming good things. Every day today, you know, it looks at, you know, we, we look at ourselves and we think, man, we're essentially good people because we do good things. Uh, you know, those people, we, uh, us as people, we, we build community around it. They, they build each other up. And, and, and it seems like they do community in some, of the, uh, in some of the atheistic and agnostic communities better than we do. You know? That's very attractive to people. Um, so I'm not arguing that. I'm simply arguing that's not love for your neighbor in the fulfillment of this command. Because it's not born out of a love for God and a type of behavior. And that type of behavior can actually be more damaging and eternally detrimental because it lies to people, telling them that they can have love for neighbor without love for God. Do you see that? The conversation that we just had said, atheists and agnostics, we do community better. We have what they have or what they claim to have and we do it better and we don't have to have God for it. It's a lie. I finished reading a book this week with one of uh, the brothers here, and the writer writes on um, something very similar or the same premise I want to give to you. He was speaking on self-reliance and the sin of it, and afterwards I'm like, whoa, that's, that's true. He says um, these words. He says, are we saying that we shouldn't be self-reliant in anything? Yes, he says. That's exactly what we're saying. Because in reality, self-reliance is an illusion, a lie. There's no such thing as a self-made man or a self-made people who pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. And if some appear to have succeeded by sheer determination and tenacious effort, we should ask, if they have the ability to, to see and think and move a finger, where did it come from? Well, Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians 4.7, What do you have that you did not receive? End quote. There are no self-made men in this world. There are none, zero, zip, zilch people who have persevered and made something of their own strength. It's a lie. And I know what they mean, and I know what I mean when I say it. And again, it's a lie. It's, a, men, it's, um, it's, it's either a lie that they're telling themselves, or it's a lie that they're believing. And we believe it all the time, too. We love stories of self-made men and people, don't we? We love the underdog story. We love people that have just gritted their teeth and bore it. History's filled with people like that, and that's one. Um, and we love to tell our kids of this person who just persevered of their own strength. You know, and that's one reason I also strongly encourage people to thoroughly educate their children from a Christian perspective, because much of the schools in which in our communities are now more than ever lying to you and your children, telling them of a group of people and a bunch of people throughout history who just made it on their own. They didn't make anything on their own. They made it because God made them. They made it because God sustained them. I'm convinced that the education to our children is inherently theological, and the purpose of it is to teach our children who God is all throughout history, all throughout science, all throughout math, and to detach God from any education, I'm convinced, is grossly immoral. Why? Because it's a lie. The base facts may be true, but to dissociate the fact from the cause and to orchestrate them in some ungodly way is lying to our children and teaching them, look at what you can do, look at what these men did without God. And it's simply not true. It's selfish, it's arrogant, it's self-centered, and we are just like that on most days, looking at everything that we have and saying, look at the empire that I've built and telling our children, you can be that great too. And guess what? They look at it and they look, and our children look, and they see our lack of devotion without God, and they come to conclusions that I can be that great too. It's, a, it's a, one of the goals of modernity, of the modern age, 
is to ransack Christianity of its morals, leaving Christ behind. And the way they do it is by keeping the morals and, and, and leaving Christ behind. Transforming Christ into some ethical fine teacher who teaches sound sociology or how to relate to one another or morals and ethics, be kind to one another, treat others like you want to be treated. And they rip these texts out and they tell them that they can do that and they can be that and you can do it and you can be it and you don't need God for it. It's a breaking of the second commandment. I don't care how many shirts off their back they give. It's idolatry and the worship of self. They don't realize that you can't have one without the other. That the love, that true love to man only comes you know, the true love to God. All love to God is in itself manifested. A person who has the love of God is manifested and displayed primarily through love to man. It's ingrained in the apostles. 1 John 4.20 says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? This is the commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must also love his brother too, or also. If the idea is, is that if the love of God has overwhelmed the soul and has been shed abroad in the heart and life of a believer, then, then inevitably that love will outflow. Why? Because uh, the, the love of God was manifested primarily, initially, supremely for display. And that God, it's part of His character and nature to share in the bounty of the love with all the world. That's why He created it. He created everything that you see, everything that you have when you look in the mirror, everything that, 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 that belongs to you, everything that, that doesn't, He created to, to share and to display it to all others. That's when the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. There's no doubt that that same love will, will desire and seek to share in the bounty of the love that Christ has extended to us for the praise of His glorious grace. That's the argument John makes. That's the argument Paul makes. That's the argument Christ makes. It's the argument the Father makes. That, that the love of God will lead to the love of others. Thus, if there is no love within us, then we are to examine ourselves. Because we're breaking the second greatest commandment. And it may be because we've broken the first. You know, that the, the problem is not that you're not servant-oriented in the world. The problem is not that you just don't like people. And the problem is not that you just don't have time. The problem is, is that we don't love God. That's the problem. Like, that's the primary issue. That's the, when, the, when the first command is fulfilled out of a, just a deep sense of devotion to God because of who He is, we see the, the image of God in other people and it compels us by the love of God. It constrains us to move towards them, to share in that bounty with our children, with our loved ones, with our neighbors, with our families, with our friends, and with all the world, with, with Myanmar, with Afghanistan, to entangle our minds and thoughts um, with, with those people and to weep with those who weep and to, and to, and to, and to rejoice with those who rejoice. It, it compels us. Why? Because it's, it's, it's a love of a different nature and of a substance of a divine sort that compels us to do things that we would have never done. Never. Never. That the second greatest commandment when it's broken is a first great commandment um, offense. That, it's, that, that the second great commandment is born by the seed of the first that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. Augustine, a great theologian, says, He who loves little, who loves together with thee, speaking God. He who too little, who, he loves too little, who loves together with thee. 
which he loves not for thy sake. He loves too little who loves together with thee, which he loves not for thy sake. Say, so what does that mean? All true loves of people are a love for the love of God, not inherently for the people, but for the sake of God. To love anything with God, he argues, and we may disagree on this, but um, I tend to agree with him, that to love anything with God and not because you love God borders on idolatry. It's kind of like this. Imagine when you met your wife or your husband years ago. In the beginning, you're getting to know one another and you find in the beginning that you have so many things in common. You're asking those questions, trying to get to know each other. You love basketball. I love basketball. You love children. I love children. You love hiking. I love hiking. That's loving with someone. It just so happens they're compatible. Don't we just love God because he loves the things we love? You ever, you ever wonder if that's just loving self? We just love to look in the mirror and the fact that they love the things that we love. It's different to love with someone. That's loving things with someone. They're compatible. It's different to love things because of God. Love is really like 20 years later and you say to a couple, what do you love to do together? And they say, we love many things. You know, hiking, sailing, theater. And the man in the conversation says, theater, really? You like theater? No, I, I do, but yeah, the guy says, I hate it. I just drudgery. And the man looks back and he says, I know, I hated it at first too. You know, but now I love it. As we've grown closer and closer in relationships, something happened and I've not only grown to endure that which I used to hate, but now I, I enjoy those things and I even love them because I've come to love her. So many things that I used to love before I got married and even when I did and I look back now and I think, man, that was just playing with cheap toys. You know? And if there's anything that we can do that my love loves, it gives a new love to me just to be there. Isn't that the relationship with God? Some people approach God because they love what they find about God because they love that too. But the Christian life is often 20, 30, 40 years later and you look back and there's such a change. And there's not, it's not a change because law demanded it. It's changed because love did. It's a change because of the love that Christ has expressed to you that now you begin to hate the things which He hates and you begin to love the things which He loves. That, 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 that legalism is born out of a devotion to God to earn something, but you realize that when Christ shed His love abroad in your heart, there was nothing more to earn. You know, Christ did it. And that, that, that relationship as it grows and our knowledge grows of Him, our love um, just grows in it even more. And now those things which I used, that plan that I had for my life and the purpose that I was pursuing and going after, man, it's just a memory in the wind. And it's not because of anything or I'm a great person or I'm smarter than most people or I have skill or intellect or anything. I'm more religiously devotion. It's simply because God loved me. That's it. And oh, how I desire to love Him with everything that I am. Not to love Him or to love things be with Him, but to love things because of Him and for His sake. The service is born because you see the, the immeasurable inherent value upon the souls of men because God has stamped and displayed His glory through and His image upon them. And thus we love people not inherently even for their sake. But that's not to say that we don't love them. We love them because He loves them. 
And we pursue them on most days, abandoning self and doing things that we would never do before and, and pursuing people and even sacrificing things that we love ourselves and are valuable to us. Why? Because somewhere along the way, the love of God teaches us that that person is more valuable than all, all the trinkets and toys in all the world. That's what it looks like. It looks like a love for yourself is what the text says, right? You say, well, that's troublesome. <laughs> You're just telling me not to love myself. I don't think that this is an idea of modern self-love. Some people will tell you that, you know, that you just need to love yourself where you can love other people. Um, I don't think so. I think you need to love God before you love other people. I think the text just assumes that you love yourself. Um, the kind of self-love promoted today is just contradictory to Christian ethics of self-denial, self-sacrifice, and God-centeredness. You can't buy into the self-love notion and hope to ever achieve um, the first or the second greatest commandment. It's just impossible because you're the, the king of, you're, you're the God. God doesn't say this is the second greatest commandment, love yourself and then love your neighbor. The idea is to love your neighbor as you already love yourself. It's a statement of fact, not a command. Within the, within the statement, it is assumed that you already love yourself, you know. One writer writes these words, commentator, he says, the command to love one's neighbor as oneself does not in any way, any way legitimize self-love. But it, in it, God addresses us as the men that we actually are, sinners who love our, ourselves. So if that's the interpretation, then what does it look like? It looks like that we're willing to do for others all that we were willing to do for ourselves, Right? What we hope others would do for us, we, we would do for others. Like it's a doing of good to others that reflects the way that we would do good to others for the sake of God. As the opportunity arises, Galatians 6.10 says, do good to all men, especially of those of the household of God. Um, it's, and it's not just do good things to other people, but also do good things in the way that you would want them to do to you or even that you do do to yourself. With the same passion and zeal as you put food on your table and you secure um, your home and you, and you desire for your own success and happiness and prosperity and blessing and just God-centeredness and just and a hundred, a thousand other things. Like, like you, you, you need to take a moment and examine the passion that you've had and the way that you've secured those over the last 37 years, Damon. You know, and you need to ask yourself this question, is that the way with the same passion, zeal, and diligence that you serve others? Because that's the type of love that you are, are to have. That's the second greatest commandment. Why are these the greatest? This text doesn't tell us, but Matthew 22 in the parallel count tells us that it's because they hang all the law, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Everything that you could ever want to know about the law, any questions that you have, the argument is, is that if you were to look at the universe and you were to hang up two hangers, you know, and all the law was to hang on those two hangers, all 613 and all the other laws since then, they would hang on these two things. Love God, love your neighbor. Right? The first four in the tables of the law um, have one God, you know, um, don't profane his name, keep the Sabbath, so forth. Love God, that's all he's saying. The last six, don't cheat on your wife with somebody else's. You know, don't steal, don't lie, don't be jealous, don't covet. Why? Love your neighbor. 
Everything that is born out of the Old Testament in the law, the mind of God, but not only the law, the prophets. This isn't just talking about a book that's written. Um, but, but everything that happened in the prophets historically, particularly pro pro proclaiming the coming of Christ, everything historically, everything in the mind of God that's been communicated to you, that there, these are the two commandments that it all hangs on. The fact that God loves, the love of God, that, 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 that everything the prophets preached against, everything they ever taught, um, the, the judgment that was to come, but also the grace that is extended to them in the Father through Christ. It was all love. It was all love. That was the, that's the idea. Everything hangs upon these two things. But it's also, these are the two greatest commandments because, um, because they are indispensable to eternal life. Turn with me to Luke chapter number 10 and we'll finish up from there. Yeah, there there's two commands, there's, there's two um, texts that are quoted in um, Mark chapter number 12. It's Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 and 5 and then it's Leviticus 19, 18. That's where you get the concept of loving your neighbor as yourself. It's Old Testament law. Um, it's not something new in the New Testament. It's something that God taught the Old Testament people to love God and to love um, their neighbor. There's one other place that you see um, in the New Testament where those two texts are combined, and it's in Luke chapter number 10 and verse number 25 um, with the parable of the Good Samaritan. You remember that? This is a different account, but the Lord is teaching essentially the same teaching. A lawyer comes in verse 26. Um, he said to him, what is, uh, uh, the, the lawyer says, The teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? How can I get to life? He said to him, What is written in the law, son? I added, son, that's not uh, inherent. Um, what is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered rightly. Do this and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? And Jesus gives this glorious story of a man who's on his way and he falls by thieves. Everything's ripped from him, stripped from him. I'm a priest and a Levite come by and they walk by the way and a Samaritan comes. Just a total, um, what would be considered to be a reject. I know it's not the best term or the most desirable term, but that's the truth. They would have rejected Samaritans. They saw them as, as less than life from a Jewish perspective. This Samaritan comes by and he picks him up, and I'm paraphrasing, puts him on his own beast, takes him, um, puts him in an inn, just binds up his wounds, cares for him, and says anything else you know, to the innkeeper that, that comes down the way. I'm going to come back. I'll take care of it all. And in verse 37, he said, he showed mercy on him. And then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Jesus turns and doesn't answer the question of who's my neighbor, but he looks at him and he says, who of these three men have been neighborly? And of course, the Samaritan had. And then he says, all right, go and do that. Be like that man. I don't think though that he's really teaching him how to Obtain eternal life, although technically that's Jesus concurs that if you're going to have eternal life, this is the greatest commandment, right? If you fulfill this commandment, technically you can have eternal life. Technically it never happens in the world that we're living in. We know that all men are born into this world um, under Adam's sin, so forth and so on. And this is unattainable. Thus Christ enters into the world on our behalf and he does fulfill the greatest commandment. I mean, just think about that. That's not even part of the sermon notes. Um, but Jesus Christ fulfilled the greatest commandment and everything that he did with everything that he had for 33 years of life just fulfilled and loved God like he was supposed to. 
you know. It wasn't always a life of just selling everything that you had. It wasn't always a life that we think of super spiritual. Maybe you're thinking, now no, i got to do this and that. It was just a life of faithfulness where he was at and what he was called to do. And he was able to love God throughout it all. But he tells them, he says, you know, it's, you've answered well. You know, we're going to have the eternal life. And the man looks at him to justify himself, and he wants to know that he's doing it right. And he asks him a further question, and the Lord gives us. I, again, I don't think that he's teaching here work salvation. You know what I think he's doing? <laughs> I think he's evangelizing him. You know, time and time again throughout the New Testament, what you see is the Lord require of certain men that which should show them that they are that they are incapable and unable to achieve any of that. Right? He looks at the rich man and he preaches the gospel to him like this: sell everything that you have, you know, and sell it, give it to the poor, and take up your cross and follow me. And he's like, I just, I just don't think I can do that. Is he preaching work salvation? No, he's he's dealing with the idols of his heart. He's dealing with the idol of self-righteousness with this man. And what he does is he gives him a scenario in which he is to be and fulfill every single day of his life at all times. You know, I can imagine the, the guy at the end of it thinking, and this is just me interjecting now, but just, just skeptical, you know, just thinking, you know, as he, as he reaches through that as a Jew, as a righteous lawyer, seeing the Samaritan come and being paralleled to that and all that he's done, you know, like this is the standard. And this isn't just the standard in this one experience. Or episode, this is the standard of all of life. You know? Maybe could we could have asked the question like this at the end of it to that man who asked the question, that Pharisaic lawyer who just seeks to justify himself, to tick off the boxes and say, I'm good enough. I'm going to heaven. I have eternal life because I've achieved it. At the end of it, maybe we could ask him this question. Have you ever done that? Have you ever loved like that? You know? Have you ever pursued anyone like that? And if you have, have you done it every single day of your life? Have you loved God like this? You know, since you came out of the womb, you know, like this is what God requires. And he tells him, go do likewise. Why? Because he knows that if he tries to do it, he can't. He won't be able to. You ever try to live like this? Like in a natural state, even saved by the grace of God, you're constantly repenting. You're constantly, um, this is a great commandment because in it is, is attained eternal life. But in it too um, is this call for us to live like this. And that this is what we're going to be accountable to God one day. And that, that in the law, we know Paul teaches later on to the, in, 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 to the church at Galatians and to all of us that the law is primarily to teach you that you can't. Okay, you may be thinking throughout all of it, I don't love like that. That's the point, you don't. Why preach a sermon like that if we can't do it in and of ourselves? That's the point. You know? The point is, is that you are insufficient. The point is, is that we are all sinners. The point is, is that we need Christ to come into the world and to attain eternal life for us. We need a God who would manifest himself in flesh and for 33 years give his life and live a righteous life and love God like he was supposed to so that one day when, when, when the law is preached, we become dead men and alive to God when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ um, as our substitute and our heir. Then the love of God, uh, Romans 5, 5 says, is shed abroad in our heart by the power of the Holy Spirit and then we are endued with power to, to, to live this type of life for the rest of our days. You know, Not in utter and total perfection this side of glory. But there are some days in which, man, you can love with a perfect love if you have Christ. Because you have Christ. And you have that love. And that if you are in Christ today, that this type of love is available to you to love God because of who He is as you see Him as He is and all of the majesty and the beauty of His glory and His grace and His righteousness and His holiness. And to transpose that upon all the people that are all around us. This is great because 
all of the universe hangs upon it. Everything in the law and the prophets. But this is great too because this is the greatest because this is what's required of eternal life. Thank God for a, a God who's, who sends His only Son into the world to achieve that which we cannot. This is an evangelistic sermon, sermon for this man. And that's why He says, Go and do thou likewise. Go and do thou likewise. It is indispensable to eternal life. John Murray says, For these who don't love the Lord... Damnation is the only inevitable alternative. So that's a little rough. I know Paul's even rougher. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 16, 22 says, If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. What's our... Um, sorry, I lied to you. I need to go back to the book of Mark. What was the conclusion? We've seen the uh, challenge. We've seen our Lord's commandment. Um, third, we see the conclusion of the... Um, of the Pharisee. He says, so the scribe said to him, well said, teacher, like you got it, man. <laughs> You've spoken the truth. He's just still as zealous as ever. For there is one God and there is no other but He. I agree with you, Lord. This is the enthusiasm. And to love with all the heart and all the understanding, with all the soul and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Like this guy understands something. You know, it, it, it's reminiscent of 1 Samuel, I think chapter 15. It's reminiscent of, of other places in Old Testament Scripture where God says, you know, that um, He values certain things over burnt offerings and sacrifices. That's what Saul got wrong, and Saul pours out, and, and God pours out judgment because of it, that obedience is worth more, He says, than sacrifice. And this guy gets something right. And then we see our, our Lord's last comment, which may be commendation. I don't know. I almost titled that, but it may be condemnation. I, I don't know. I don't know about this young man's heart. I don't know how close he is to the kingdom. I don't know if he's moving in the right direction. I don't know if he's going to fall like the um, or end up in the same pot as the um, the guy in Luke, um, seeking to justify himself. But our Lord returns with this: When Jesus saw, he answered wisely. You got it. He said to him, "You are not far from the kingdom of God." But after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. You're right, teacher. You've got it right. You're right, son. You're so close. You're so close. Isn't that kind of staggering? I mean, the guy's doctrinally sound as you can be. And God says, God himself and the person of Christ says, you're still not there. You're still not there. You know, that all the theology in all the world, tick all your boxes, learn the catechisms, all the questions, all the creeds, all the works that you can possibly do, and you're still not quite there. Go and do that likewise. Good luck. You're still not there, son. Why? Because only Christ can save. Only Christ can give this morning a new heart. You know, that's the thing. That's the quandary, isn't it? God created all men that would seek Him, but we know Romans chapter 3 says no man will. Thus God enters into the world with His only and manifests Himself in His only Son um, to care for that which we do not care for and gives His life a ransom for many. And that in Christ you find this love and nowhere else. Nowhere else. You know? How practical is that? I, think, I thought of this morning, I thought this week about teaching my children and how often I teach second commandment without first. You know? 
I'm like this man here, right? He got second commandment, but not first. He wasn't loving God with everything that he was. He wasn't loving Christ. So many times throughout the week, I'm disciple and my family just to do the right thing, do the right thing, do the right thing. And I'm realizing if that's the only message I ever preach, I will condemn them to hell um, uh, more than the devil's will. You know, that too is born out of one and a love for God, son. You need to love God. You know, and that love is only found in Christ. Do you have it today? Do you have him today? Do you know the love that God shed abroad in your heart and now you're just living off of, off of the fumes of God's glory, wondering why you should carry on most days, but then you're reminded of the great love wherewith you were loved and the reason for which you were created, you know? That's the only way you could sustain yourself in the world today with the type of religion, the type of ethics and morals that we carry. Legalists are going to die in this land. You know why? Because they're going to become exhausted, you know? Um, when tyranny and when evil comes at our doors, the only way that you could ever give your life um, for the cause of Christ when they do show up at your doors um, is to give your life every single day prior to that and have a habitual life of giving yourself for the cause of Christ simply for the love of God. Because if you're doing it for anything else, um, believe me, we would have shut the doors a long time ago because there's better ways to get people here, you know? There's, there's greater methods, you know, from a natural perspective to draw a crowd. We could change a hundred things, and there may be things we change down the road because of God's leadership and discernment. You know, we're not fixed in on uh, every single little thing. This isn't all there is. We're seeking to grow in Christ. I told that man last night, pastoring just a few people and wondering if they're going to be there this week. You know, you've got to remember, man, while you're doing this. You know? Because if you don't, you'll give up tomorrow. You gotta remember why you're doing this. I do as well. You gotta remember why you're parenting, you gotta remember why you're working, you gotta remember why you're laboring, you gotta remember why you come. Like it's not in a sense it may be for me, in a sense it may be for your spouse, in a sense it may be for your children, but may that sense be born out of a love for God. May you see him this morning in all of his glory and all of his majesty and all of his splendor. May you see him like you've never seen him before in which all the beauty of all the world just pales in comparison. And you say, if that's the case and you require my life today, then I have gained all the more because I've gained Christ. I've lost much of nothing in this world. May that be us. What's the greatest commandment? Love God. What's the second? Love yourself. Or love others like yourself. Don't love yourself. That was inappropriate. Strike that from the record. Love others like you love yourself. And spend the rest of your life doing that. Let's pray. Father, we love you and praise you and thank you for your glorious grace. Father, we thank you for the text. We thank you for the scriptures, Father. We thank you for the mind of God being communicated to us. What... What an amazing truth, Father. What an amazing God. Hero Israel, hero Christ Bible Church. There is one God. May you love him. May you serve him. And may the world know it through the way you serve people. Father, that is our prayer. That is our call, Father. Um, that we would come to the end of ourselves, that you would just crucify, Father, selfishness and arrogance and pride 
um, self-grandeur, Father, self-advancement. Um, Father, for the glorious display of your person upon other people, Father, that you may save them. Father, you deserve all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. John tells us that. Father, we seem so incapable on most days and fall so short, Father, of your glory. And at the same time, Father, we're just we're still moving because of that amazing grace that you've given us. So, Father, would you, in the midst of our struggles, just continually remind us, Father, of that amazing grace. God, will you just keep the gospel at the forefront of our minds? God, may we not fall into a realm of legalism where we're trying to earn any stature with God to earn our salvation, but just realizing, Father, that out of love and gratitude, and we're serving you because, of this, because you first came to serve, that we love you simply because you love us. May we not love things simply with you, Father, but may we love things because of you. May we not teach our children a lie that they can be good people. May we not teach others that they can be good people without God. Father, may we teach them, Father, that righteous conduct flows from a love for God with a joyful spirit, Father, and that the word of, that the commandments of God are not burdensome because of that. Father, I beg you to give us a greater love for you because I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to love you more other than you just show me more. So, Father, would you show me more so that I'll love my wife more, I'll love my children more. Father, I'll stop clinging to myself and all the things that I love in this world, Father, and, they'll, and, um, and I'll just I'll be happy and content and satisfied in you and the things that you've given me, Father. God, would you accomplish that work in our hearts? I'm not sure that we're there, Lord. I'm not sure that we're there as individuals and as a church. But there's so much that needs to be done. Sometimes I think we cling to too much, thinking it's necessary when it's not, and willing to give certain things up because we love them. But they're not things that you love, Father. You love the people in Kingsport, Bristol, and Johnson City. God, this is our, our land. This is where we're at. You put us here for a reason, to seek you. Um, but at the same time, Father, in our seeking of you, you're to display that to the world. Father, your bride is out there, and we need to go get them. So would you help us to balance all of life, Father, and to know what to lay down and what to pick up? Because Christ died for some of these folks. Died for, all the, the tri, died for the Tri-Cities, Lord. Out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And he deserves those people. So, Father, help us to love you and to love them by going. In whatever respect you've called us, Father, help us to be faithful that your character may be displayed for the glory of Christ. And we trust you to accomplish the work, Father, because we know that we can't. So we look forward, Father, to what you're going to accomplish in the coming days. Father, we pray these things according to the cause of Christ, his person and work, and by the power of the Spirit, Father, trusting that it honors you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.